Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Hello and welcome to the... Uh, let me grab my, my notes here. Welcome to the 890th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and dad, Paul. And today we are coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app, from TalkStream Live, and on TuneIn.com. Uh, today we bring you a new guest on a historical yet still hot topic. If you'd like to join us on the air, call 401-766-1240 from anywhere or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. John Fraser is currently a member of the spontaneous... What? Huh. Okay. Is somewhere on the mic? No. Well, kind of. But please, keep talking. All right. Okay. Well, anyway, John Fraser... Currently a member of the Spontaneous Cases Committee and the Council for the, Soci- hmm. of the Society uh, for Psychical Research. He has previously been Vice Chair of Investigations for the Ghost Club, founded in 1862. Uh, the SPR and the Ghost Club, by the way, are two of the oldest and most prestigious organizations in this field, uh, headquartered in, in uh, London. John joined the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena in its founding year. He is the author of Ghost Hunting, A Survivor's Guide, 2010 and Poltergeist, A New Investigation into Destructive Haunting, August 2020. So it's a new book, and that will be the subject of our discussion today. Uh, John has written articles for the Fortean Times and other magazines. He lives in Croydon, uh, the borough of London in the UK. So, John Frazier, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Um, I, I, okay, go ahead, Ben. Yes, so... Let's let's just hop right 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 in, into the meat and potatoes, if you will. So, what is the usual definition of a poltergeist, and is that definition good enough, in your opinion? Well, the usual definition of a poltergeist is um, uh, a direct translation from German, a noisy ghost. Um, I kind of think it differentiates too much between normal ghosts. Because people say people say oh, I've got a poltergeist or I've got a ghost, and what my book tries to say and what I think is they're probably different symptoms of the same thing. So as far as it goes, it's okay. But um, one would hope in the last 150 years um, we can probably fine tune that definition a little bit better. Okay. So I guess I guess uh, the the next obvious question would be. In your opinion, how can we fine-tune it? What's kind of the first step? Uh, the first step is to um, is to try to define what we're talking about when we talk about um, uh, poltergeists and ghosts and other aspects of the paranormal. Because the more you look at it, the more there seems to be that there might just be one type of paranormal phenomena. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, about 30 years ago, um, Tony Cornell, um, uh, a colleague of mine at the Society for Psychical Research, wrote another book on poltergeists. And 
Pharma Encyclopedic than my mind's meant to be read. His is probably meant to be studied. Now, his book uh, took 500 cases and noted that about 30% of them um, also had visual phenomena and a separate 30% also had audio phenomena, sort of things that would kind of relate to traditional hauntings. So a lot of people kind of say, this house is haunted, or I've got a poltergeist. Um, there seems to be a strong argument for saying they are just the same thing, taking on different dimensions. There are several assumptions, and we talked about some assumptions when, when we did our pre-show uh, get-to-know-each-other kind of call here. One, <coughs> excuse me, one, one uh, assumption that, that goes all the way back to Harry Price and probably before the Harry Price being, you know, Nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century uh, uh, fellow who uh, was investigating this, most, mostly twentieth century into the thirties, um, is that when objects are moved, and I've experienced poltergeist firsthand on several occasions, two major ones, as a matter of fact, and when objects move, they are moved by the poltergeist, whatever the definition of that is. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that is an assumption that that is is um, uh, necessarily able to be supported because, I- at least in my experience, I, I, when objects have moved, very rarely have I felt the presence of an entity. Is it possible that I'm wrong? Of course, it's always possible, sometimes probable, uh, but also that uh, simply energies. Uh, Coming back and forth between whether whether you want to say parallel worlds or wherever or whenever these things are coming from uh, is actually moving the objects because uh, and and because th- th- this uh, implies the quantum physics idea that uh, there, if there are parallel worlds they would some of them would have different laws of physics and a refrigerator for example which I experienced with a bunch of police officers and firefighters in 1974 floating uh, would have been because of an overwash from a world where, where the laws of physics were different. Maybe the thing was weightless. You know, that sort of thing that allows the poltergeist to come and go, whatever it may be, um, and that the, the the entity itself, if it is an entity, is not directly moving the object, at least not in every occasion. I know that that's a long question, but what say you on the idea that maybe... Um, these are uh, that RSPK recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis is not necessarily caused directly by an entity or by uh, the agent of the the energy that is manifesting. And I'm really messing this up because it's very complicated. Um, <laughs> That's okay. It is it is it is a very complicated um, uh, um it's a very complicated area. Um, and I probably shouldn't just answer you by saying yes. But I probably will start by by saying, yes, I think you might have cracked the way forward. I'll give you two examples. Um, now, if we do have an intelligent entity causing this, what would make it want to lift your fridge up? Um, I mean, without communicating in any way. better example of that would be um, uh, there's a very famous case in the United Kingdom called the Black Monk of Pontefract, mm. which almost certainly wasn't a black monk. Somebody did see a figure in a hooded robe, probably a dressing gown or something like that. Um, but the interesting thing is here, there was all kinds of 
objects, movement, some things being flowing around and what have you. But in the nine months uh, of the main events, there was no communication, nothing sensible happened. It kind of behaved like um, uh, a two-year-old having a tantrum or possibly somebody's subconscious alter ego. So, I mean, if there was some kind of afterlife entity, um, in general, would it want to do all this stuff for no purpose whatsoever? Then it kind of gets more interesting, because there's also a famous case in the United Kingdom of a gentleman called Matthew Manning, who started out um, uh, uh, when he was about 10 or 11 strange things happened at his house. Then he went to a private school at some, uh, I think, a public school in, in the USA, um, a VPN school. And um, strange things happened there. Things got thrown around and he nearly got expelled. Um, but he gradually managed to um, start to control these energies and is now a pretty famous, uh, pretty famous internationally renowned medium uh, uh, who has um, apparent healing powers. So from being a poltergeist boy that couldn't, couldn't have any control over these things, he suddenly has grown up so he can have control of these things. Now, if this was all being caused by an outside entity, he probably wouldn't have had control of these things. So I start to think there's probably um, a better case for it being RSPK powers than there is for being a mischievous spirit, uh, because it wouldn't say much for the quality of the mischievous spirit if there was one. It would be the ultimate barroom boor just basically making a nuisance for themselves all the time. Well, that leads into the second assumption, and that is that these are spirits, okay? Now, the very physicality of the poltergeist phenomenon, which is probably among the most physical uh, that I've experienced, certainly in, in the paranormal realm, um, begs the question, you know, if, if this is a spirit, which by definition is a non-corporeal entity, doesn't have any body, doesn't have any vocal cords, things of that kind, how do these physical events take place? And, of course, my, our answer is, as you know, is the, that it's not uh, a spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a, a creature, a parasite from parallel realities or whatever who can come back and forth. Now, maybe that's baloney. Maybe it's correct. I don't know. Um, it works for us. But uh, you also bring up a very important point of, of, a, of a confirmation bias, uh, throughout your book, which is very important. You know, one often will come up with explanations uh, for phenomena, whether it be poltergeist or anything else, that will verify one's own belief system, okay? Uh, on the other hand, that doesn't mean the belief system is wrong either. So, I mean, th that's the thing. But what, what say you about the notion of spirits, the physicality of poltergeist activity, and uh, the assumption by many uh, even in the SPR or the ASPR or whatever group we're talking about, who may have PhDs after their names, assuming these are non-corporeal entities, in some um, cases anyway. I don't discount that by any means, but I think there's probably simpler explanations than a spirit. Um, just, to, just to go into this confirmation bias thing a little bit further, because it's actually in some ways, there's one or two amusing examples of this. If you go to 
Romania or even to Transylvania, which I've been lucky enough to go to about five or six times, um, you'll find there's an awful lot of um, uh, uh, cases that are reported as vampire cases, mm. not surprisingly, bearing mm. in mind the culture and the um, uh, possible belief bias of the particular region we're in. But these cases tend to tend to um, consist of a lot of um, things being thrown around, um, pots and pans, clattering, and so on, typical poltergeist things. Now, if you go to Latin America or Colombia, um, there's a legendary entity known as a duande, which basically gets um, di- direct translated to being a goblin, which even paranormal investigators in uh, you know, in the first instance, probably wouldn't take seriously because you can go ghost hunting, you can go poltergeist hunting, but somehow it seems incredulous to go goblin hunting. <laughs> but once you look at some of these cases, um, there's a particular famous one from the um, uh, mid nineteenth century, uh, basically consisted of a stone throwing goblin. Um, um, throwing stones at the house of a quite famous family. Uh, they um, they actually got in 12 people from the army to try and work out who was doing it, but still the stones were thrown. And, um, you know, this is, this is typical poltergeist fear, just described as something different because of the people's um, belief system. It's also worth noting in Spanish Latin American... Um, at least until recently, there's been no direct translation of the word poltergeist, so you had to use something different anyway. Well, I was fascinated when I ran into that in your book, the notion of, of the vampire. Uh, we tend to think that the parasites as that we talk about are actually the origin of human folklore about vampires, because what did the Sumerians call them? Life-sucking ghosts. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we attempt to assist people who are bothered by these things. You run into a lot of chronic fatigue syndrome, things of that kind. So uh, maybe there's a connection, maybe there isn't. We think there is. Then uh, you look like you want to ask a question. Uh, I'm, I'm formulating the words. Yeah, so we, we have um, some some good questions from Peter in, in, in South America, who is a, a listener who sends in questions almost every week. Very good questions. Would you like to take Peter's questions first? It's typically um, it's 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 the tw- typically 12:20 is when we take Peter's okay. questions. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I, I've just got, I'm I'm over I'm just overflowing with questions myself here. But go ahead, Ben. Why don't you? Um, Take uh, Peter's uh, questions here, because that has to do also with uh, Transylvania. So. Sure thing. Hey, you know, it leads right into it. Yeah. Um, so Peter, uh, his first question is, uh, have you investigated the Skull Experiment? And if so, what are your thoughts about it? I have um, uh, researched the Skull Experiment because I wasn't, I unfortunately wasn't around at the time. I'm uh, I've had a fair amount of experience, but that goes back to the 1980s uh, when I wasn't a member of the SBR. But I've researched it quite thoroughly and actually wrote it up in some detail in my first book about ghost hunting. Uh, Skull experiment, probably never quite get to the truth of it, uh, for sure, because it would have to be replicated and um, we're not in a position to do so. However, the 
Um, it split the SPR at the time. Um, now Montague Keane and two of his colleagues basically um, went into a series of medium experiments in this little village in Norfolk called Skoll and came out with some very interesting phenomena um, which the SPR wrote a very large report about. But um, last 50 pages of the report also consisted of criticisms on, of the technique. Now, if you're going to investigate a medium, be they, be they genuine or otherwise, the first thing I would say is don't do it in the medium's house because mm. you've already lost an element of control. Second thing I'd say is don't do it in the medium's house in pitch darkness. <laughs> um, third thing I'd say is don't let the medium select who comes along because um, uh, Maurice Gross, who is famous for the Enfield poltergeist and is tends to be a believer in the afterlife, was actually excluded from that experiment for being too critical. So you've got three, three, three don't do's. Uh, next don't do would be don't um, allow the only control to be Velcro armbands, um, which are fluorescent, because they're very easily taken off. Whether or not they were, I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, so you get a lot of uh, phenomena happening, a poet's appearing, um, but without at least four very important controls. Then it gets even more interesting because one of the, from memory, one of the particularly interesting um, poets was a historic newspaper from the 1940s. I think it was the Daily Express. Um, but um, uh, I think it was Tony Cornell, um, uh, uh, one of my colleagues again in the SPR, looked into this very carefully. And they had actually done a rerun of this historic edition um, in the 1970s. And they had done it on, I think, with a red title when the original one, due to wartime cutbacks, had been on a black title, you know, when you're using, using black and white. And I think from memory it was a red title which appeared. So the so the entity was actually producing a copy of a newspaper uh, rather than the newspaper itself. And that struck me as being a little bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, I wasn't there. Um, some, some of my former colleagues, unfortunately, have all passed on now, so they can't, um, they can't add anything to it, uh, were very convinced. But the controls weren't there to really convince people outside of that room in a little village called Skoll. Uh, I'd be interested to know what, um, uh, what your listener actually thinks about it as well, though. Sure. Um, well, I've looked into the school experiment as well, and it just, it struck me, the first thing that struck me was that it was saturated with the, the spiritualist point of view, right? And they were spiritualists pretty much who were, do, who were doing it, and uh, people who, uh, I believe there were two couples, two married couples who were not, you know, exactly uh, PhD. Foy, Robin Foy was the main medium, yes. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. 
So uh, I, I just I, I wasn't there either. As a matter of fact, my main criticism of critics is that, um, you know, particularly when they're talking about a case I was involved with, was that, uh, you know, you may be right, but, but I was there and you were not. So we weren't, neither you and Ryan or Ben were there, so it's, again, it's difficult to, to say, but all we have is, is the uh, circumstantial uh, evidence that maybe it was not quite what it should have been. Mm. One of the uh, <clears throat> more interesting um, points, uh, and in your book uh, you mentioned some historical cases such as Jeff the Talking Mongoose, about, oh, yes. uh, about which we did a very popular show uh, in 2019, uh, with Tim Swartz, whom you may know, uh, who wrote probably the only recent book, anyway, on, on the subject of this uh, <coughs> uh, poltergeist-like phenomenon, at least in some cases it was very interesting. Uh, but my own experience, and we talked about this when we spoke before, during the Bridgeport case with uh, uh, Sam the Talking Cat, uh, I was on uh, a radio show, uh, Coast to Coast, as a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, and Someone called in and said, "Were you aware of the uh, of the the uh, tete a tete, as it were, between the cat and a, one of the firefighters who happened to be the the father of the caller?" And I said, "No, I, I wasn't aware of that." And uh, supposedly the cat followed uh, the firefighter and said, "You're not going to find out what's going on." And he turned around and there's the cat just sort of staring at him, and he heard the voice. Uh, but anyway, we, we talked about some of that. A very strange uh, auditory phenomena that sometimes will accompany the poltergeist uh, uh, situation. Uh, can you give some examples of um, things like Jeff the Talking Mongoose or animals? That, that, There's actually uh, one more question from our... our oh, there is. Okay. Yes. Well, uh, we'll belay that for a moment. Where we can talk about vampires. Well, let's and, let's let's take the, uh, Peter's the, final question here. In the ever-growing career field in Romania of vampire hunting, uh, I understand you have made several trips to Romania. Uh, what interesting information or experiences resulted from this? Um, they, strictly speaking, weren't um, uh, paranormal research tricks. Um, uh, I actually went with the Ghost Club initially to investigate the truth behind the Vlad tips and um, uh, and Dracula uh, sort of tourist scene more than anything else uh, though through doing so through a very interesting organisation called the um, Transylvanian Society of Dracula which unfortunately is no more um, I did run into a lot of Romanians who were interested in the romantic side of the vampire, but also very interested in um, the supernatural and purely in photography and, and all kinds of things like that. And so I kept, picked up the views of Eastern Europeans through basically going on a very kitsch, but very, very interesting um, uh, uh, Dracula tour, and um, uh, actually encouraged us to do so for a couple of years. I was actually, I was actually organi- helping to organise Dracula tours from this country and sending people to Romania to visit the count. Hmm. There we are. Well, why don't we take our mid-show break and we can uh, return to the vampire scene uh, when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON <clears throat> 12:40 a.m. and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest on the subject of poltergeist, John Fraser. So stick with us. 
tonight is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's WON 1240 AM and FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Let's get back to John Fraser and the subject of poltergeist, which has wandered uh, rather uh, significantly into the realm of vampires. So. Well, I mean, arguably, it could be the same thing. What was, sure. what was it? Uh, the Mesopotamians basically referred to vampires as life-sucking ghosts. Sure. So, I mean, it's it's related, I'd say. Well, I don't know if, if John is aware, but maybe he can comment on this. The uh, New England, particularly Rhode Island, Connecticut, have a tradition of vampire lore. I, I, it's probably not more of a tradition. It's, it's less a tradition than it is a series of incidents. That occurred from about the, from before the American Revolution up until about 1895, which historically is yesterday. You know, so um, one example from 18 early 1890s was the Mercy Brown incident in Exeter, Rhode Island, uh, not far from here, and uh, it seemed as though European, Eastern European beliefs, such as one would encounter in Romania, were in play. Uh, the body was exhumed and the heart burned on a rock, uh, not to be unnecessarily vivid, and the rock is still uh, there in the cemetery, the, the uh, uh, Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter, and the, uh, the epitaph, the pious epitaph on the stone was effaced, and uh, that was stolen for a while, but then it was returned, of course, cultists and things. But there, there were, were reports of movements of objects in the brown home, uh, and then one... Uh, child after another, well, the grown child after another, they seemed to have uh, come down with what they would at the time call consumption, and uh, several of them them died. The uh, uh, ashes of the heart were put into a, a uh, solution by a doctor and given to the young man, and he apparently survived, or actually died anyway, I think. Mm. But it, it was uh, right out of Eastern European, and, and I've never been able to quite fathom how those beliefs got here other than than by seafaring people who may have encountered them were you aware of that as a matter of fact before you answer that uh bram stoker uh in his files when he died uh was found a, a newspaper cutting of that this very incident that i've described from rhode island so one wonders if that had some influence on on the the composition of dracula or whatever that's a little bit off topic but uh are you aware of um, those uh, those incidents in america sound fascinating i mean be curious to know if um if they apply to any eastern european immigrants to america or not um Mm -hmm. because the the main reason that um america uk france for that matter and so on don't do vampires in my opinion is because um vampires are are basically come from the concept of incorruptible corpses, uh, sort of demonic entities from the incorruptible corpses, is, is basically how you'd sum up a vampire. Which is fine for the Christian Orthodox Church, because that fits in well with um, uh, their beliefs, but 
incorruptible corpses in the Catholic and Presbyterian, you know, offshoots and so on, are actually saints. So to think about something vampiric or undead or uncorruptible as being evil just kind of cuts across uh, religious beliefs, which is why we've got very, very few cases in the UK. Um, there's one, one apparently in Crogland Hall in Northumbria, which um, dates back some time and may or may not have been fiction. But um, it's not a good way for us to describe something something unexplained is normally described as something demonic or evil just because it's unexplained and it scares the hell out of us. And because of, you know, our, our slant of Christianity, it doesn't usually fit in very well. Oh, well, that's like, that's half right. Uh, as Orthodox Christians, uh, my, my father and I, um, the the reason that vampires exist it's it it goes back to Second Temple Judaism actually um, essentially it was it's a it's a reference to um, well it's a reference to a couple of different things uh, it's a reference to how the well hell was essentially viewed where you kind of scatter you, if basically a huge punishment was if you weren't buried and you just kind of had your body thrown into a valley and then it would be eaten by by various animals and stuff. So the weeping and gnashing of teeth that's mentioned throughout Scripture is essentially, you know, you you become demonized because there's two different ideas. You have divinization and then demonization. Divinization is you essentially become like, you know, the the sons of God as it's mentioned in the Old Testament, and you achieve this thing called theosis, which is essentially you become more like God. Or you do the opposite, and you become more like a demon. So if you look at the story of the demoniac who runs around in the tombs. It's it's a, it's a inflected that he eats dead bodies and bones because you become like an animal and you eat the bones as in the bones thrown into the fields, right? So it seeps into not just Eastern Europe for a while. It was in Middle Eastern cultures and then that got changed out uh, with the rise of Islam. You know, like Constantinople and all those places, the, the, the further west it went, it kind of stopped um, – Right around, you know, Romania. It was, it wasn't a good portion of Russia until communism, you know, kind of wiped a majority of most folklore out. And then, you know, it was in portions of Western Europe, but then that got phased out as the Enlightenment happened and all that stuff. Um, but essentially it, it, it's the, the idea of incorruptibles is, is a thing in, in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, there's actually, if you ever wind up in Alaska, you can go see the body of uh, Saint Herman of Alaska. He's he's still there. He's incorruptible. Um, I think actually the Saint John Chrysostom. Uh, a couple. There are a couple other ones that are that are incorruptibles as well. Because essentially the belief is that the body will also be glorified, not just the soul. The whole human person, body and soul, will be glorified. So essentially, the opposite of that would be becoming a vampire. In, in layman's terms, being demonized and existing in the tombs and eating of the bodies. Yeah? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let, let's uh, move Moving on. on. <laughs> um, you use the term, John, poltergeist syndrome. Can you explain that, please, in, in your book? Well, it's like um, uh, in medicine. In medicine, when you have a series of symptoms, but you, but you can't quite pin down a cause, it's called a... 
Um, syndrome, I mean, one of the most common is irritable, irritable bowel syndrome because nobody's quite clear what causes it. It's just a series of symptoms. Mm. Um, likewise, uh, we have things that we will call poltergeist symptoms, um, uh, but, but there is no clear cause, so I would call it a syndrome very much like doctors would call something that they don't understand a syndrome as well. I mean, the most recent syndrome in medicine, unfortunately, is the um, long COVID syndrome. Again, you've got lots of different, lots of different symptoms which seem in some way to be related, but nobody's quite sure, unfortunately, at this stage, how COVID calls them, causes okay. them. All right. Uh, th- there's a cute term in your book, uh, the one-trick pony uh, poltergeist. Could you talk about some cases where it sort of comes and goes, or that, that doesn't hang around, or one-trick pony uh, sort of uh, description? Because uh, I've uh, run into that too, but usually in the context of other paranormal situations. So could you talk about some of that, please? Yes, of course. I mean... I've kind of also in the book um, compared poltergeist to being the ultimate Baron Boer, I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, there's a lot of case, a, a lot of poltergeist cases where they really, apart from the fact the phenomena is fascinating, um, there's very little of any intellectual interest done. In fact, somebody, um, I won't go into detail because this is a ongoing historic case and obviously it's just something that um, uh, the SBR deals with quite often but we don't necessarily publish where and how and when. But somebody contacted me very recently about a situation where all that happened was that stones were thrown into their garden and onto their roof again and again and again and again. They actually had the police round. They actually had a nearby army base trying to find out what happened. And they spent virtually five years without being able to work out how up to 100 stones a day could come into their garden. Uh, but nothing else. And and they also had the some object movement um, stones laid out in the shape of a cross and so on. But nothing else. Um, nothing, no communication, uh, just the one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if um, you were familiar with the case that because uh, I, I I'd never heard of it before, but uh, Tim Swartz, uh, American researcher and investigator who is a frequent guest on the show, uh, was talking about a case in the Midwestern U.S. Uh, in which he was sitting in the living room of the home, and rocks were small rocks were falling from the ceiling, and uh, almost as in the movie Poltergeist, right? And uh, when he uh, looked around the area, he saw that there was a field in back of this home uh, with just such stones in it. And he took uh, a marker and he marked an X on one of the stones that had fallen from the ceiling, threw it out in the field, and within a short time, that very rock fell from the ceiling again. So what would be your interpretation of that sort of thing? 
Well, when you say an interpretation, I'm, 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 I'm not going to suggest I have a definitive answer um, to why that happens. I mean, I tend to think it is some kind of subconscious power. Uh, but um, against that, there is there are cases where there is a certain amount of um, uh, apparent intelligence. Enfield being the best example, uh, because Enfield, apart from all the stones throwing and the small fires, etc., you had the circumstances by which one of the young girls involved in the Enfield Council House uh, did actually apparently come out with some information as to where the possible poltergeist actually died um, in the chair from a brain hemorrhage, and that was um, subsequently confirmed down to a T. Now, you can question as to how public that knowledge was, but let's for a second assume it wasn't. Um, you have got their intelligent communication, which would totally ruin my my working hypothesis that it is uh, something that comes from our subconscious minds. Um, so, so I'm not sure, but there's not a lot of cases where there is much intelligent communication. Uh, so that's why I'm tending to go to, in this direction, at least at the moment. Sure. One of the um, interesting notions that came out of Tibetan Buddhism is the topa, or the thought form sort of thing. And there have been, uh, much has been made of cases, I'm thinking of one in Canada in the 70s, where some students decided to literally create uh, a spirit, quote-unquote, that they could communicate with, and that was actually photographed, things of this kind, and the implication being that, that the power of their minds or subconscious had created this. Um, there is some interpretation of poltergeist as being something like that. Um, the the common parapsychological uh, interpretation that I'm familiar with is that uh, you know the agent uh, in the case of a you know, prepubescent child or something like, such as Marcy in the Bridgeport case of 74 or, or many cases like that uh, are actually the origins of the poltergeist um, do you think it's possible that uh, some poltergeists are thought forms uh, all poltergeists are thought forms I mean, what say you on that subject well I think whatever poltergeists are, they're probably one thing. I don't, I don't think they'd have poltergeist A, poltergeist B, poltergeist C. It starts sure. to get... Agreed. It's, uh, from, any, from any scientific point of view, having three, three separate theories for something really weird and unusual um, isn't the best place to start. Um, well, I, I think thought forms are very, very similar to... Um, uh, what we would term RS, RS, RSPK. Uh, certainly with the Philip experiment, um, they, they managed to trigger off, um, they, they managed to trigger off phenomena by thinking up a non-existent um, uh, entity called Philip. Mm, that was in the UK, a, I believe, right? No, that was actually in America. Oh, was it? Uh, okay. It was a, it was a, I thought you were talking about the same case when you said the Canadian students. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It was a it was a chap. I've forgotten his name, but he was um, based in the UK. Then he went to Canada, 
and um, uh, and basically invented a ghost, had lots of sittings. Uh, he was actually trying to invent a ghost. We didn't get any. Um, he didn't get any visual phenomena, but what he did get was um, objects being moved, tables being moved, and so on. Uh, he gave it a entity. He even gave it a. He gave it. A, he gave Philip a wife. He gave Philip a mistress. He gave Philip a artistic picture, and um, the whole group started to believe in him. And gradually, Philip started to do things. Um, gave him a very sad story as well. His wife committed suicide, I think, because she found out about mistress. Um, so you got the sort of tensions that seem to trigger something off. Because the really interesting thing is, uh, nearly always where you've got a poltergeist case, you've got a significant stress factor happening immediately before the poltergeist case starts. That's probably one of the reasons um, a lot of people kind of tie it in with pubescent teenagers, because that's one of the most stressful situations most of us have ever been in, between the ages of 12 and 16. Um, you know, I mean, it's quite a few years ago for me, but I'm sure we can all remember it. But there's lots of other cases that don't involve um, teenagers that, that might involve the loss of a job. Uh, there's a particularly famous case in Germany, the Rosenheim poltergeist, where a 19-year-old lady had just had her engagement broken off, then went into the offices of the law firm from where she worked and started blowing light bulbs and having heavy, heavy filing cabinets moved and um, uh, that sort of phenomena. So there seems to be a stress factor involved. And if there is a stress factor involved, it kind of convinces me that there's a reasonably good chance it's wrong within us. And then if you add the Philip experiment to it and you actually create a situation where you're actually trying to create things, then you've nearly got a juncture between, as you say, a tulpa which, again, is just a different way of possibly describing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you also have a very good discussion in the book about uh, the possibility that poltergeist phenomena are far more common than we will would ordinarily think, because people simply don't report it or, or don't know what to report, or, or it isn't that bad. Now, we've run into this... Uh, the poltergeist phenomena, as it were, as in the movement of objects, uh, as uh, in, in the periphery of a number of other sorts of cases. So I guess the um, the question would be, do you think that, or have you heard more reports as we have, that in, in the stress of the last two years, uh, particularly given the pandemic with people stuck in their homes, things of this kind, and, and I guess a lot of that's still going on in the U.K., that I have relatives there that are <laughs> complaining about it, um, that, that poltergeist phenomena in some form has uh, increased. Well, we're certainly getting, getting quite a lot of correspondence at the Society for Psychical Research. But I don't think we're ever going to be able to say yes or no to this one because, by definition, they, we've, we've been in semi-lockdown since... But last 50 years, it sounds like, actually. It feels like it month, but no, it's just over a year. Um, and people are aware that we can't investigate. And I don't know whether that would 
stop them reporting it. And even if we do get something interesting, we can't really follow up to see if it's substantial or not. So I would certainly say we should get an increase in in this type of low-level one-off poltergeist phenomena. But it's very difficult to know if we ever or ever find out whether that's actually happened or not, because by the essence of a pandemic lockdown, we just can't really investigate the um, uh, possible phenomena. Well, I guess that's that's fair. So let's say someone someone reports a case. You you find it to be to be uh, valid, um, meets all the requirements, whatever. Um, you're able to investigate it. What is what is the first step for the person who's affected? Is is there is there a, a process to relieve stressors or or explain what the the process is or is there a process? Uh, I wouldn't say there's. I mean, there's a there's a certain amount of don'ts uh, for absolutely for absolutely sure. Um, first don't is do not go in calling yourself a demonologist mm. well, as unfortunately right. <laughs> some rather famous um, people both sides of the Atlantic have done so mm. uh, it's pure apart, I mean A it's, a, it's putting um, uh, confirmation bias in the thing and B it's probably frightening the hell out of <laughs> you know you've had a few unusual things happening and then suddenly a demonologist appears yes. in the door yeah, right. It's probably just an extra stressor. Couldn't on top agree of it. more. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It's 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 not good. Over. I mean, over and above that. Um. Obviously, in in a non-public case, the the reporty always comes first. Um. One of the reasons I said there's no fixed rules is, um. We in the SPR we don't tend to do clearances. It's just not what we do. We do have members who. Uh, spiritualistly inclined, which is fine, but we don't, um, I mean, clearances can work, they can make things, they can sometimes make things worse. Again, it seems to be how the people view the clearances. Um, what we try to do is uh, calm, calm things down, explain to people that um, uh, even, even though these are very strange events, uh, it's very, very rare anyone's come to any harm from them. Um, occasionally, we try to give practical help. One of the best examples of this would be actually going back to my ghost club days when um, a unmarried mother with a very young baby had just had a um, uh, council house transfer, uh, I think you call them... Uh, Social housing in the USA. Uh, public housing. Public housing. Yeah, yeah. she'd just been uh, she'd just been transferred from a one bedroom flat to a two bedroom flat. So she was very happy about it, obviously. Perfectly, perfectly nice flat in the scheme of things. Um, you could see she had wallpaper to put on the walls. She bought some everything like this, and she had this strangest sensation about being stopped by this tall, dark man who had pushed her in the bathroom and um, uh, various other things and had uh, even had the impression of having laid in her bed, you know, imprints in the mattress and so on. And um, 
No, there was obviously no motive for her to make this up. She wasn't after publicity or anything like this. Uh, so we 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 did actually take in mediums to just kind of assess the situation without telling the background. And they they did actually um, uh, point out the particular places where the man tend to stand tend to stand his approximate height, the approximate age that she'd identified him as, and so on, which was quite impressive. But the key thing here was, uh, rather than do any clearances or what have you, we dusted down the very impressive-looking um, Ghost Club 1862 um, notepaper. We wrote to her council explaining that she was absolutely convinced of the situation and it wasn't doing her mental health any good. And... Um, uh, she managed to get her MP on board, as Member of Parliament on board as well. Mm-hmm. And between the Ghost Club and the Member of Parliament, we managed to get her another transfer across the road to a very similar house. Uh, so that's why I say there's no rules. Um, but the only rule is that the, um, or the only set in stone rule is, is that the rapporteur comes before the investigation after that, if you can collect any good information to prove or disprove the situation, that's a bonus. All right. Can you tell us about your books, uh, your website, uh, anything, anywhere people can find out more or get the books? Um, get the books um, on, on Amazon and every other good um, uh, bookseller. Uh, you can... Um, uh, I don't have a personal website. If you're interested in the Society for Psychical Research, uh, it's, um, if you look up um, spr.ac.uk, uh, it's a very interesting organisation. It's got a little bit about me and people of interest, um, amongst others. Uh, but the book is, ve- book is very easy to obtain. Um, if, if you Google Poltergeist, a new investigation into destructive haunting, a nice long book title, John Fraser, you will get numerous sources by which you can buy it. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, and can be contacted if you want to contact me. I think I'm, my tag name is Ghost Fraser, G-H-O-S-T-F-R-A-S-E-R. And... Um, uh, I'm not difficult to track down, unlike the tooth of poltergeists. Mm. <laughs> Very good. John, thank you so much. I think we've only scratched the surface. We'd like to have you back and then maybe talk about our Peter Pan theory uh, that we use in cases of this kind. And we'll send you some information on the New England cases of the vampires. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, we'll get to yeah. our announcements now, Ben, if we can here. Indeed, but hey, you know, we'll, we'll do what we can, I, I suppose. Uh, so, our fifth neighbor, neighborhood, uh, meeting in what we refer to as the Pennsylvania Triangle on, or the Dubois Triangle will take place via Zoom on Saturday, May 8th, and, uh, there, and that's at 3 p.m. There will be a brief, pre- brief presentations by us and by our colleagues who are all in the group investigating this case, especially since uh, 2016. Uh, Also, there will be a uh, guest appearance by two local cryptid experts. Uh, It's free, uh, but there will be a chance to donate to a uh, specific charity. Uh, We'd like to limit participation in this uh, to people who live in Clearfield County, or at least in Pennsylvania, 
But if you have a, a special interest or feel you have something to contribute to the discussion of this flap area case, please contact my dad. That's Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Yeah, we're working on our new book, uh, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. Also contributing will be several of our colleagues, including Valerie LaFasso, uh and several others, uh, Alexander Petikoff and Shane Searway. Uh, the book will also contain our best interviews over the years with the greatest minds and researchers in the UFO field, as well as some of our own experiences. I'll look for the book released late this year or early next. And, uh, Ben, uh, what do we... Uh, yes, so you can, check, here. you can check out our uh, current books, along with those of our other co-hosts on our show website. That's BehindTheParanormal.com where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, public appearances, and how to book us, uh, along with some of our 900-plus free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, and uh, all sorts of other goodies on there as well. And also uh, on that site, please check out our charity page. We have a, a number of charities we've adopted uh, whose uh, organizers and uh, operators we know personally, and we know that uh, the money goes where it's, it should uh, Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts, mm. uh, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in Northern Rhode Island. So what do we have coming up next week, Ben? So next week we have uh, kind of a fun little show uh, that's April 18th. We'll have a long-awaited open-line show with Rick Eno sitting in for uh, Shane Searway. Uh, uh, and our usual open line guest co-host, and you can get your questions too. Paul at the behind Paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And we'll leave you today with an uplifting thought from my very favorite saint, Julian of Norwich, from 14th century England. Truth sees God, and wisdom contemplates God, and from these two come a third, a holy and wonderful delight in God, who is love. I'm Paul Eno, and I'm Ben, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on. Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.